Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, the gospel concerning his son. For I am not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who has faith, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed through faith for faith. As it is written, the one who is righteous will live by faith. So as we have a, as we, as I begin kind of the message this morning, we, last week we started a new sermon series that is entitled Blueprint. It's a guide towards a deeper and more fulfilling faith. If you get it, you're going to be good for the rest of the book. If you don't get it, then we're going to ask that you listen to the sermon online a couple of times until you kind of get what we're trying to say, because understanding the message this morning will help you to understand the rest of the book. So before we get started, I pray that uh, let's have a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, now as you prepare our hearts, our minds, and our soul, we pray that you would silence any of the distractions that are going on in our mind about the things that we have to do later, about the work week we have ahead, about the problems in our relationships. Whatever it is, Lord, we pray that you would silence those things now. And that as we open our hearts and our minds to you, that your spirit would be poured out to us in a double portion. That you would give us clarity and understanding. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. I want to begin with our scripture this morning. And it begins where we began last week, and it says, Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which God promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scripture, the gospel concerning his Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, through whom we have received grace. For, whom God, for God, whom I serve with my spirit by announcing the gospel of his Son, I am a debtor, both to the Greeks and to the barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish, hence my eagerness to proclaim the gospel to you also who are in Rome. Now, if we look at the first 19 verses of the book of Romans, what we find is that Paul uses the word gospel five different times. Now, to some of you, it's like, okay, no big deal. He's going to talk about the gospel. But one of the things that I hope would happen when you're reading this, that maybe those antennas in your mind would go up and you would see that if there is a word that is repeated that many times within the first kind of like chunk of verses, that's something that's probably going to be important. For Paul, he says, my entire ministry, the essence of my being, the my value and my worth is tied up in the gospel and in then being able to proclaim this gospel to you. Now, my question to you, and you don't have to answer this, but when you think of the word gospel, what comes to mind when you think of the word gospel? For, for some of you, it may be the first four books of the New Testament, right? Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They are called the Gospels. For others of you, you may be thinking of the six Bible verses you learned about what the gospel is, how you start as a sinner and you end as a saint because of what Jesus did for you. 
But what happens when we kind of just narrow it, kind of our mind goes to these things, to it's either a book or it's this six set of verses that help us to understand what God did. What happens is it becomes a thing. The gospel becomes a thing that we then talk about and we study and we each have our own understanding of the gospel. But the problem is, is that it becomes a thing. It becomes a formula that we follow in order to get saved, which is often followed by the sinner's prayer, which is like, God, forgive me, for I am a sinner. In Jesus' name, amen. But the gospel is more than a thing that is to be studied or a formula that is to be followed, but rather the gospel is the demonstration of the power of God to save you. The gospel is not a thing to be studied, but rather it is the demonstration of the power of God to save you. And I would say it this way, the gospel is the event in real life human history, which is the culmination of and the clearest example of God's love for you and God's grace given to you. So we always, as Christians, as Seventh-day Adventist Christians, we have to fight we have to fight this, this knee-jerk reaction to make everything that we read in Scripture a thing that needs to be studied, but rather what we need to do is reclaim this biblical essence of knowing that if it is said in Scripture, then it is real, and it happened, and it can happen to us, and so the gospel is far more than a thing to study. It is a thing to be lived into. The gospel is God's real-life human history event that shows how much he loves you. Gospel is a demonstration of God's power. The gospel is the event in real life human history. is the culmination of God's love for you. And, and in essence, this is how we live into this. Paul would write in another letter to a different church where he says, so if anyone is in Christ, if you've given your life to Christ, there is a new creation. Everything old has passed. See, everything has become new. I wonder if we did an experiment, and I always, I always wonder this, if I did an experiment of all of the things that you wish you could change about yourself, or all of the sins in your life, or, or maybe if I said, what are all of the reasons that if Jesus came today, you probably wouldn't be saved? I have a sense that the majority of you would have a list that is longer than three reasons as to why Jesus wouldn't take you to heaven or wherever this heavenly place is. I have a feeling you would have a list of that. Yet what the Bible teaches us and what we're going to learn this morning is that if you've given your life to Christ, if you've accepted the message that Jesus, being God, gave his life for you, you are now a new creation. Everything old has passed away. See, everything has become new. To truly live into the gospel, to truly understand the gospel, is to say that you actually are a new creation and God is continually working in your life to bring you to the best version of yourself, the version that God always dreamt of from the moment that he created you. So you got to get this, right? So we have to ask then, when Paul uses the word gospel, what does he mean? So really quickly, by the way, so this morning is going to be one of those deeply theological messages. I have no jokes to tell. I have no stories to tell. And some of you are like, oh, great. <laughs> but because this message is of so, such heavy importance in our biblical and in our life of faith, that we have to really just spend some time developing and understanding this. So when Paul uses the word gospel, what does he mean? So really quickly, in the first century, 
Whenever, whenever the emperor would come into your town, the gospel would, would come before him saying that the emperor is coming. If Caesar had a son that was born, that was called gospel. That was called good news. If there was news that the, that the empire had won a battle, that was called the gospel. So the gospel is just a word that means good news. Now, what Paul does is he takes a word that was used in the secular realm, he takes it, he hijacks it, and he says, this word is now our Christian word, and we have a gospel that is better than any that the empire could tell us. We have a message and a story that is better than any victory could bring to us. We have a message and a story that is better news than any son being born to Caesar. And so Paul takes this word, and when he talks about the gospel, this is what he means. For Paul, the gospel begins way back in the book of Genesis chapter 3. Most of you know the story, but I'll just you know, streamline it. Adam and Eve are in the Garden of Eden. There's only two human beings around in all of Earth's history. And so Eve has a conversation with a serpent, which is already kind of weird, but we're going to go with it. And here's what it says. The woman said to the serpent, which is the devil, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the tree, of the fruit of the tree that is in the middle of the garden, nor shall you touch it, or you shall die. So here is the pronouncement that is if you live outside of the way God intends things to be, if you live out of sync and out of harmony with how God wants things to be, death will follow. Now, it's not because God is trying to kill everyone off, all right? But in, in God's cosmic way of understanding, he knows that if you follow the way of God, the most abundant life will come to you. But if you follow any other path, you are going to miss out on the life that God has created for you. We see this in the very beginning. For Paul, Paul was a Jewish man who had read the first five books of the Bible. Remember we said this, he studied them, he understood them. For Paul, he saw the world through an Old Testament understanding, which means that if it's in the Old Testament, Paul would have understood it, and he interprets the world based on what he has learned from the Old Testament. So Paul instantly said, understands that in the beginning, God had a plan, and humans messed that plan up, and as a result, sin enters the world Romans chapter three, 6, verse 23 says that the wages or the payment of sin is death. So if you have ever sinned, it doesn't make you a bad person. Sinning doesn't make you a bad person. Sin makes you a dead person. According to the scripture, if you have ever sinned, then you are dead. It is introduced in Genesis chapter 3, and what we find is that God says, okay, since you guys have sinned, I'm going to introduce to you a, a way of getting forgiveness for those sins. We can't get into it this morning, but it was an elaborate system of sacrifices. You would bring an animal, and it would forgive you, and it would cleanse you of your sin. Once a year, the entire nation of Israel would be cleansed. So it's an elaborate system, and in the Old Testament, God says, look, you are going to have to follow all of these laws and all of these rules, and if you do, then you're in, then you're safe. But let me ask you, are following the Old Testament rules really that easy? It's, okay, so maybe there was like 666 or something. No, no, that's wrong. 600 and what? What are they? It was like, it was like 600 and something laws. Like the, the number eludes me now. But let's just say it was over 600 laws, right, in the Old Testament that we find. So that's a lot. So God's like, okay, these human beings, impossible tasks. Let me narrow it down to 10. We have the 10 command. How many? 613. The amount of seeds in a pomegranate fruit. 
it's, it's the truth. We, it's in Scripture, kind of. But, so God says, let's narrow it down to ten. If you can follow these ten, the ten commandments, then you're going to be good. Then you're going to be able to not only relate to God well, but you'll be able to relate to others. And that's all we really want, is to be able to get along with other people and to be able to have a connection with God. But even in those Ten Commandments, is it really easy to follow Ten Commandments? No, and yet part of the Old Testament understanding is that if you could follow these laws, then you get in, then you are safe, then you are saved. This was the covenant, the, the, the pact, the deal that God makes with Abraham and follows the Israelites through the Old Testament, and there was not one person that could live up to all of these rules. And so we come to Romans chapter 6 where it says the wages, the payment of your sin is death. Now, here's where it gets important. From the moment you're born, do you even stand a chance to be less, like, to not be a sinner? Right? Maybe like your first couple days, maybe your first even weeks, you're good. Because, I mean, if you're a baby, do babies, I mean, I don't know if babies know what's going on. They probably do and the joke's on us, you know, but... But for the most part, it's probably safe to say that babies are, are pretty much, they're in for like the first couple hours or days of their life, right? But once they get older, even children sin. So in one way, God is completely unfair to allow you to be born into a world where you don't have a chance. It's like when I was in high school. Here's a story. When I was in high school, in an effort not to do football conditioning, because I was in football for a couple years, and um, not, I wasn't very good, but I played. And, but, so one of the things is, in order to get your PE, your physical education credits, um, you had to do some sort of you know, physical activity. And for those who were in the football program, you could go and lift weights for like an hour and a half. Now, I knew I wasn't going to be pro. I knew I wasn't going to get a scholarship, so I was like, man, this is horrible. I don't like working out. I like running, not lifting. So my friend and I in the weight room trying to kill time, we looked out the window at Fullerton High School, and we saw the tennis courts, and it was the season where it was boys tennis. So my friend Roy and I decided, let's just try out for tennis. What's the worst that can happen? And it, you know, it looked easy, right? So we went, and we played, and we actually made the team as a doubles, right? We're so bad, but we made the team, right? The coach had... <laughs> But, but we started to get better, and we started beating some of these other kids that had been playing way longer than we had. I had never picked up a tennis racket except to hit tennis balls, like, over the house into the back, you know, the neighbors in the backyard. But, I mean, right, so we were getting good, and I was, like, I took it seriously after a while, so I would, like, stay after practice and run stadiums. I would hit against the wall for hours. I mean, I was, like, pumped. I'm, like, we are going to do awesome. I was already imagining in my mind how we were going to win, like, the best record in the league because Roy and I were awesome. And, the, and then we go in, and we play the first team. I don't even know who it was. And they just decimated us. The way tennis works, you have to win, you have to go up to six games, and it was like six to zero. And I was like, what? Like, we're good. And the rest of the season, I mean, we got a little bit better, but these other kids were just amazing. And then when I made it to varsity the following year, right, then I took it really serious, right? And we played schools, and I'm from Fullerton, so we played schools like Sunny Hills and Troy, and Sonora wasn't that good. Um, Buena Park, we did okay. But some of these other schools, these kids were like, I remember one time, 
there, oh, it made me so mad. I'm mad to this day. It's like sinful in my head. There was this kid, and he was smaller than me, and my muscles were bigger, and I was like, over. I am going to. And this kid was like eating chips. He had a bag of chips in his pocket, and he still beat me. And I was like, done. The point I'm trying to make is that being born into this world is like me playing some of these really top-tier players in tennis. I didn't have a chance. I got some points. I, got, I, I was able to win a couple of games, but never a set. And that's the way that life works. When you're born into this world, it is unfair. Some of us would even say, I don't even want to believe in a God who would allow me to be born into a place where I don't even have a chance. And then we come to a verse that we all know well. For Jesus says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that everyone who believes in him may not perish, but have eternal life. God didn't ask you to be born into a world where you wouldn't stand a chance. God didn't ask for your permission somewhere before, before you were in your mother's womb to ask, is it okay if you can be born? But God also doesn't ask you if, he think, if you think he should give his life for you. So even though we may think that it's unfair to be born into this world, God provides a way out. Even though you are born into a world of sin, God provides a way for you to be sinless. And we're going to get to that in a few moments. So it may seem unfair at first, but the truth is, is that God couldn't be any more fair because he takes on the wages, the payment, the penalty of sin. He takes that on when Jesus gives his life on the cross. So for Paul, the gospel is that once you were dead in your sin, but Jesus makes you alive. Jesus not only makes you alive, but he makes you a new and a better creation. For God so loved the world that anyone who believes, anyone who believes, will not perish but have eternal life. And it is about this message that Paul then goes on to say, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who has faith, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in the gospel, in it, the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed through faith, for faith, as it is written, the one who is righteous will live by faith. Now, this, these two Bible verses, are I mean, they are packed, and I'm talking about packed, like jam-packed with, with theology, with promise, with hope, with assurance. I mean, this, in a sense, this chapter, or rather these two verses, is what started the Reformation in the 1500s. This is the verse that Luther, you know, Martin Luther came across and changed his life. And it, is, and it is this verse that God used to get through this man, Luther, to then begin what was called the Reformation and what would give birth to us today. We, and so I'm going to break it down for you before I jump ahead because I'm getting excited. <laughs> like, I read like seven different commentaries and they all kind of said the same thing, but it was just so much fun. And this is, this is what I've given my life to, so I hope my excitement comes across to you guys this morning. So when Paul begins by saying, when Paul begins by saying, I am not ashamed of the gospel. See, for us in 2015, we ask, well, why would he be ashamed of the message that changes the world? 
Why would he be ashamed of the gospel? But the truth is, is that in the first century, a lot of people, much like today, thought that the message of a man dying on a cross was foolish. Because you have to understand, for the first century Christians, the people that were becoming Christians after Jesus' death and resurrection, it was like, wait, you guys are telling me that you guys are worshiping a guy who died on a cross? The cross was the ultimate form of humiliation. It was the worst. It was like, like, okay, you lost. Like, you are the worst of all people. And so for people in the first century, they were saying, you guys believe in a guy who dies on a cross? And so to go, to kind of show you, and it's not up on the, on the screen, but Paul is not ashamed because the message of the gospel is the power of God for salvation for everyone. Now, Paul says in another letter to the Corinthians, and I don't have that on the screen, he says, the message about the cross is foolish to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Yeah, people said, you Christians are dumb, you're foolish, you're morons, you don't know what you're talking about. Why would you worship a guy who loses? And Paul says, look, to you it may be foolish, but for us it is the power, because people didn't understand that the wages of sin was death. Paul would go on to say, For God's foolishness is wiser than human wisdom, and God's weakness is stronger than human death. So even in the death of Jesus, that is way more powerful than all of the strongest human might. I am not ashamed of the gospel, Paul says, because it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who has faith, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. I'll talk about the last section quickly. The Old Testament was given to the nation of Israel. They were the Jewish people of the first century. And so Paul said, and so Jesus often would say, okay, so this is Jesus saying that I have come to the lost house of Israel, which means that Jesus was coming to the Jewish people, right? It's like, whoa, Jesus, thanks for being so exclusive, right? Because what about us? You're Gentiles in here, not, you're not... Jewish. But then Jesus would also, before it all ends, he says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. Jesus says, this message isn't just for Israel. This message, this message of grace and hope of reconciliation is for everyone. And so Paul says, it is the power of God, of salvation for all who would believe. A better way to understand this passage is for in the gospel of righteousness, from God, wait, for in the gospel, the righteousness of God is actually the righteousness that comes from God. Because what happens sometimes when we read scripture, is kind of like, what does that really mean? But here what we see is that the righteousness, it begins with God is righteous. Paul will later go on to say that there is no one who is righteous. The Bible will tell us time and time again that there is no one who is good because the understanding is that we as sinners are dead. Only God is righteous. No one could follow the laws of the Old Testament to become righteous. So Jesus fulfills the Old Testament covenant by laying down his life. Jesus not only lived a sinless life to fulfill the covenant, but then he gives his life for every one of you who believes. The gospel is the power of God in order to save you. You see, the reason that this is the foundation of all, everything, and of your faith is that this is the word that we use in churches, and you only hear it in churches, but the word justification. Justification means that you have been made right 
in the eyes of God. Jesus' death on the cross no longer holds you accountable to die for your sins. Like, the, like that's the gospel. How many of you have ever had any kind of debt? School loans, credit card loans, car loans, loans to your sisters and brothers, which isn't really a loan. <laughs> <laughs> now imagine that all of your debt was just wiped away. How amazing would that be? How awesome would it be if all of the debt that you had accrued over your lifetime would just be wiped away? So what we find here in Romans chapter 1, verse 17 and 18, is that the debt of your sins, all of the sins that you have, all of the sins that have accumulated and are building up to the payment of that, what you're going to owe because of your sin is death, Jesus pays it all. Wipes it clean. What, what we come to in this word of righteousness and God's righteousness this righteousness that is of God's, and then he gives it to you so that now when you stand before the judgment seat of God, all God sees is the death of Christ in you. What we call this is being justified. It means that you can now, today, this very moment, for every one of you who is here, who is standing, or who is sitting here, if you were to stand before God, if Jesus comes today, if you've given your life to Jesus, if you've accepted this message because it, it's just the most powerful message you've ever heard, then Jesus takes you to be with him for all eternity. If today was that day, you are in. Now, some of you, or some of us, <laughs> I'm thinking about the things that I did yesterday and the day before. Sometimes I even think about the things I did a year ago, five years ago, 15 years ago when I broke a window at the Anaheim Church on accident, trying to save a kitten, I don't know. <laughs> but what the devil does, he messes with our head, and what we do is we remember all of the things in our past. And it says, well, I want to believe this message, Pastor, but I have all these things behind me. You know what the funny thing about that is? You're the only one that's thinking about your past because God no longer sees your sins in the past. And in a sense, God doesn't see your sins going forward because he only dies once. Jesus died more than 2,000 years ago in this cosmic reversal of how things always were, and he says, you have all been forgiven. And when you're truly encountered by this Jesus and by this message, I mean, how many of you, if your debt was wiped clean, would say, no, 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 I'm going to pay it all? Sorry, I would be like, thank you, Jesus. <laughs> Thank you, benevolent person who paid off all of my debt. <laughs> right? No one, no one, I don't care who you are, would say, no, I don't want you to pay it off. I want to pay it off with interest. None of us would want that. Right? We all want to win the lottery so we can pay everything off. And yet that's what Jesus does with your sins. The only thing that truly matters in this world is God and the relationship you have with God and to this God. And for so many of us, you're like, oh, there's so many things that get in the way of me and God because of all the sins and all of the failures and all of these things. And the message of the gospel is that God's righteousness has been given to you so that when you stand before God, God says you are in. The second part of John 3, 16, verse 17 says, God does not come into the world to condemn 
God is not going after you with this cosmic clipboard of all of the sins you've done wrong. All God sees is, have you accepted my son? Not only have you accepted him, but have you accepted what he did for you? He has paid it all. God, I want to sing that song. I've been listening to it all week. Rusty, sorry to put you on the spot. (laughs) But Jesus pays it all. For in this message, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. Now, this is one of those tricky places. But basically, one of, one of our ancient writers, John Calvin, one of the reformers, says, Faith, it's a kind of vessel with which we come empty, with the mouth of our soul open to seek God's grace. Faith is when we come before God and we say, like, God, may you believe for me. Pour into myself your spirit. Give me a double portion of your spirit. Because the Bible is clear that there is no one righteous. The only way you become righteous is not on your own ability to be good, but the only way that you can be righteous is by allowing God's righteousness to fill you. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed through faith. All you really have to do is have faith. And even this faith, is it really your own doing? And this is where this gets complicated. But when you've truly been encountered by God, it's not really your response to say, oh, okay, now I believe. That's the only real response you can give. So let me give you this analogy, and then we're going to kind of close up. This is, this is what helped me. Someone told it to me. See if I don't mess it up. How many of you have ever been in love? Oh, that was actually like an amen kind of question. <laughs> Imagine, let's start this way, when you fell in love for the first time with that girl or that guy, and you met them, and there was something about them that you were just like, man, I just, I just can't get enough. I want to be with this person every moment of every day. I love them. I want to live my whole life with them. Did you really choose to fall in love with that person, or was it something that you couldn't help? For the most part, it's something you can't help. When you come into contact with this person, it is just so natural. It's just like, oh, I love this person. Now imagine, if that's true about a human being who's going to hurt you probably at some point in some small ways or big ways, but either way, if that's true for how we interact with humans, how much more powerful is it when we are attracted to the God who encounters us? So even when you have faith in God, it's not even yours because you can't help it. You can't help it because not only of this message, but because of the power of God and the righteousness of God. And this righteousness is given to you, and it is revealed from God's faithfulness to your faith. The best way that I understand this part of this righteousness of God is revealed through faith, for faith. I read seven different commentaries with seven different views on this. The one that makes the most sense for me is this. God is faithful. God fulfills the the covenant of the Old Testament. He even dies and sacrifices himself to fulfill that covenant because God knows you cannot live up, not even to ten commandments. God forgives you. He gives you the power to stand before God. And so it is through God's faithfulness that then we have faith. So even God does the hard part. And so as we kind of bring this almost to a close, the Bible says, As it is written, the one who is righteous will live by faith. 
A better translation of this says, is the one who is righteous by faith shall live. The one who is righteous, the one that has accepted this message of Jesus, the one for whom God has made you right before God, the one who has accepted this message will by faith live. Faith, then, should properly be understood as an absolute reliance on God, His Word, and His Word, rather than your human abilities to be good or live up to some standard. Let me read that one more time. I know it's hard when there's nothing on the screen. Faith should properly be understood as an absolute reliance on God and His Word, rather than on your human ability to be sinless or to be good. This is the message of the gospel. This is your debts wiped clean. This is all your wrongs being righted. This is your past to then enter into the eternal kingdom of God. One that you don't wait for at some point in the future when Jesus comes, but one that Jesus is inviting you to live into today. Church is a part of that kingdom, and everywhere that you go, you bring with it, you bring with you the kingdom of God. So every good deed you do isn't just a good deed that you do, but it's you bringing the kingdom of God everywhere. The one who is righteous by faith shall live. And it is this message that when we started, it says, Paul says, I am a debtor. I am eager to present this message because for Paul, He even says, I was like the best of the best Jews, and even I fell short. So this was good news for Paul, because he knew his whole life he had tried to be perfect. He tried to be sinless. He was trying to be the way you are trying to be today. Trying to do everything that God is telling you to do. Trying to live by every law of the Old Testament and all of the commands of the New Testament. He tried to do all of that, and he could not live up to it, because he understood that it is God's righteousness that is given to you, and you are made clean. Now, I'm going to end there. You are justified. You are made right by the faith that you have in this message of who Christ is. Next week, we're going to get into a longer passage, okay? So come prepared. We're going to, I mean, it's a Bible study, but next week, um, if you have a friend you've been wanting to bring to church, don't bring them next week. (laughs) That. Look, that sounds really bad, right? Because it's like, wait, pastor, that's the wrong... No, but... That, so, so I'm preparing you for next week, okay? Read, read Romans chapter 1, verse 18, through Romans chapter 4, verse 25. We're not going to cover all that in one. But what I'm saying is next week, the message that Paul begins to talk about gets very grim and dark and heavy. It's a message that we need to hear, but it's hard. And so someone that hasn't heard these first two messages may not really understand what we're doing by going through the next passage. Does that make sense? I encourage you, read it, because the next passage, it, it has a lot of truth. But it also, it, you, if you miss the first two, two sermons, it's going to be hard to really pick up on that. So just be ready for that. Please try to read it before you get here, because um, it's, it's important, it's powerful. And it'll all make sense when, when we preach, when I preach next week, okay? God bless all of you.